A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online. And built around your schedule, it's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. Today we've got a special one-off episode for you, an interview with an old colleague of mine at The Atlantic, the conservative author, commentator and former White House speechwriter David Frum. David just happened to be in London for a few days, so we thought we'd grab him for a chat. Helen was away at the time, so for this episode, it's just David and myself. David is perhaps best known for coining the phrase, axis of evil, as George Bush's speechwriter in the White House. Since then, he has gone on to write a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Trumpocalypse, chaired think tanks and become one of the best-known commentators in the US. Until recently, David was seen very much as a man of the right, a bete noire of the left, scourge of liberals everywhere. As he has written himself, he was, and I presume still is, a conservative Republican. He volunteered on the Reagan campaign in 1980, worked on the comment pages of the Wall Street Journal, backed the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and, of course, supported the Iraq War. David, it is fair to say, is no lefty liberal. And yet, he is now not a cartoon for Democrats, but for Republicans, the party he once served. And that is because David has been one of the most outspoken conservative voices against Donald Trump. David has written that Donald Trump is not only unfit for the presidency, but a threat to the American Republic itself. He believes the Republican Party has, or is, abandoning everything it once stood for, from democracy at home to free trade and the American order abroad. Welcome, David Frum, to the Unheard Studios here in London. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I thought we'd start by really just pulling the camera back as far as we can, really, and thinking about... American foreign policy, America's role in the world, really the state of the world right now. Ambitious. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're well, the right man to do it. Over the last 20 years, you could list a series of quite sort of catastrophic moments that we've all lived through. You could think of Iraq and Afghanistan, the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis, Ukraine today, Syria, Libya. We can go on. I was reading through your pieces what struck me is that you're sort of urging on the states to rebuild yeah. a world, rebuild that transatlantic alliance. Do you think there is a certain case for saying we need a far more dramatic policy change? Well, like what? You've got certain, for example, Elbridge Colby and the like in the states right now are pushing for a much less of a focus on Europe 
just essentially, look, Europe can deal with its own problems by itself. It's time that the Americans started to focus on on China or on free trade. Yeah. That things have to change. People say we need to focus on one part of the world more than another part of the world. I've got bad news for them. They've invented airplanes. It's a much smaller planet than it was in the 19th century. You don't have the luxury of carving out some part of the world and saying, okay, in this part of the world, infectious disease we'll care about. Mm. But over there, we trust those viruses and bacteria not to immigrate illegally across the line we've drawn. They can be as sick as they want. Or that we can have a nuclear war in one part of the world or climate change in one part of the world, but it won't affect our part of the world. The key thing that Americans have to keep in mind is the planet is small and America is big. Mm -hmm. And there is no part of the world where America can't help. It is always influencing. It is influencing consciously or it is influencing unconsciously. It is influencing for good or it is influencing for harm. But there is no way to withdraw and say, that's not going to be our concern because the microbes migrate. But America is big to some extent from a European perspective, almost feels bigger than it once was. Ukraine would probably have fallen already without the United States. But is America as big as it once was? In other ways, it doesn't feel as big. It depends what you compare it to. If you're going to compare it to the moment when, after World War II, when the entire world lay in rubble and people everywhere in the world, even in Europe, were starving and people in the UK were hungry and the United States in that year of catastrophe produced half the planet's output, obviously, it's not a failure that the United States has now built a global alliance of wealthy, successful partners. That's a success. And that the flourishing of so many potential partners and allies and fellow democracies That's not a sign of American weakness. If you talk about periods, here's the way I would think about it. And maybe I'm just reflecting the bias of my own biography. 1989, 1990, the early 90s, that was the central switching event. I grew up at a time when there were question marks when the United States was losing the Cold War, when the Soviet Union felt very powerful, when democracy seemed to be in retreat. And then there was that miraculous half decade where so many aspirations that had long been dreamed of came true. And there were a lot of hopes, and a lot of them were exaggerated. A lot of them went too far. A lot of them weren't. I remember when the, for example, to use a local example, I remember when the Irish problem seemed intractable. It was settled in those years and in ways that are, I think, pretty satisfactory for everybody. So much progress happened. Downside of that progress was success breeds arrogance. And the United States, by the end of the 1990s, thought it could do anything. It thought it was 1947 again, that the world was completely plastic to be Mm -hmm. molded not by the United States alone, but by the United States and key partners. Yeah. And that the whole world was going to keep becoming more and more like the United States. And then we had the shock of 9-11, our over-arrogant ambitions to try to remake the Middle East as we had successfully brought change and change for the better to many parts of the world. Then we suffered the great, as you said, the great recession. And then we went through a period of real loss of self-regard, real disappointment, real self-questioning. The thing that has changed is the Ukraine war. And that's not because of us. Because what you found were these people whom all the democracies had been a little condescending toward, uh, a little disrespectful of. And they reminded us, these values that you speak of, we're going to die for them if we have to. We're going to fight for them. They're important. And they're strong. They're powerful. They're not so strong as powerful they can stand alone. So not only are we going to fight and die if necessary, but we need you to be united. We need you to remember who you were and to believe the things you said and to back us. Looking back at that period leading up to Ukraine, as you say, there was there's an element of that period of the age of hubris when we thought that sort of the end of history and, and all of that. 
And you, I think very specifically about Clinton and Chinese access yeah. to the WTO, built on this idea that American democracy would spread everywhere and Chinese wealth wouldn't be used against America. Yeah. But that seems to be what's happened. The, those people who were making the warnings were proved to be right. I think it's adolescent, not to put that, not to say that of you, but this idea to say, you try something, it didn't work, right. therefore it was wrong. It would have been wrong not to try. The Chinese economic development had serious negative consequences that people hope not to happen. It's had serious positive consequences, too. I think the people in the 1990s who said, let us hope for the best with China were right. Where they were wrong was they said they didn't do enough to say, but let us also prepare for the worst. Yes. But I think we still, even today, need to continue to hope for the best. There must always be a hand of friendship stretched to China. The relationship we want with China is one of partnership. Their accomplishment in pulling hundreds of millions of people out of poverty deserves respect. This planet is not going to be a good place to live unless over the long term we reach partnership between all the major players of the world. And that's what we want from China. In my view of the way American foreign policy ought to be conducted, it may not be possible to have a productive relationship with China at any given moment in time. Mm -hmm. But if it's not possible, let it be clear that's their fault. Because from our point of view, we're prepared for the worst. We should have the military preparation, and the alliance structures, and protect intellectual property. But never give up on this. It's too important. But the conservative mindset is always to live in the world that exists, not the one that you think or you want to exist. The, the Americans did that with the Soviet Union after the Second World War. You could have said, oh, we hope for the best with the Soviet Union, but we have to prepare for the reality. In the, and I think that clearly seems to be the thing that was missing. And not just from the state. This isn't a criticism entirely of the state. If you look at my own country here, there is a sort of low-level corruption of the British elite through Chinese money. And it and there was a there was mistakes, policy mistakes off the back of that. That seems like a legitimate criticism. And to some extent I wonder whether that sort of naivety gives the oxygen for people like Donald Trump, who you're evidently opposed to or you've been very critical of. That kind of China stole our lunch. That, there was a point to that. Yes, you have to live in the world as it is, of course. What other world is there? But if you don't know what you're trying to do, mm -hmm. how are you going to do it? If you don't know where you're going, how do you measure whether you're successful or not in getting there? After the, the Second World War, the United States did try for the best with the Soviet Union. It extended, it invited the Soviet Union and their partners, or their subject nations, I should say, not their partners, into the Marshall Plan. Mm -hmm. it, the Soviets refused and vetoed the participation of countries like Poland and the then Czechoslovakia. That was on them. And that was a huge debate. Americans understood. The Amer leading Americans of the time understood the Soviets would say no. And there's a debate, why invite them then? And the answer is because it's important that they say no. In the same way today, it's important that it be China that says no. I agree with you, problem of low-level corruption. But speaking of not be naive, one of the things that it suits a lot of people to do is to externalize our problems. Uh -huh. But for the Chinese, London would be absolutely a spick-and-span property market. Because it's not because of anything we British do. It's not because of any choices we make. Okay, maybe we made it, decided it, to make it invisible who owned any building. Um, <laughs> yeah, that but, was on us. <laughs> but it's so mean that the Chinese exploited that vulnerable that our lawyers had carefully and elaborately created over many years. My present, your former colleague, Ann Applebaum, has made the point that one of the things we've learned from Putin and the Chinese is that corruption is a strategic issue. That one of the differences in the year 2000 from the year now is back then we thought there were strategic issues, armies, navies, and then there were side issues like corruption and the environment. 
maybe epidemiology. These were the, the lesser e issues. But we now know that's wrong. The environment, epidemiology, and corruption are essentially strategic because one of the lessons in the Ukraine war is aggressive military force by authoritarian regimes is a much less potent weapon than we thought and those regimes thought. And if I'm a Chinese dictator and I'm looking at the Taiwan problem, I think right now, do I really want to invade Taiwan? Mm -hmm. uh, would Ukraine have been easier if it had been across 100 miles of open water? Or do I want to systematically corrupt Taiwan? Do I want to systematically buy journalists, buy lawyers, buy accountants, buy politicians, and buy people like that in China? Isn't that going to be much more economical, much less spectacular? And so I think we need to be ready for real-world threats that the environment, epidemiology, and corruption deserve to be absolutely the same roundtable as armies and navies. I just want to, to, to push on this a bit then. Well, from the American perspective, you've got two fronts now. Essentially, you've got Europe on one side of the world and you have Asia, China on the other side of the world. And you are the main player that is supporting both sides. You're being asked to do something that is, sometimes I think we don't sit back and say how extraordinary it is. You're having to defend Taiwan and the whole of Europe. And at the same time, you've got Russia trying to corrupt the political system in Europe through gas dependency, property, all of these other things. And at the same time, the Chinese will do it in Taiwan. Let's look at Taiwan. Say, What happens if they do start to initiate a blockade of Taiwan? What is Americans' policy then? 20 or so years ago, a great British statesman gave a famous speech about the weary titan in which he depicted Great Britain upholding the world order all by itself, and the world order was getting heavier. And that speech, which was misguided then, continues to guide a lot of criticism of American policy 120 years later under completely different circumstances. Yes, the United States has enormous global responsibilities. It also sits at the center of a network of an extraordinary series of global assets and partners. So you talk about Russian and European gas dependency. Mm. That has been enormously relieved over the past year and a half. How? with help from Norway, with help from Canada, with the step up from some partners in the Persian Gulf region, the, the creation of a new market in liquefied natural gas, mm -hmm. with a lot of partners who have stakes in the tanker fleet. So the liability side of the ledger, as the world gets more sophisticated and richer, as there are more and more strong powers in the world, that the liability side of the ledger or the, the responsibility side of the ledger seems to get bigger. But so does the asset and opportunity side of the ledger. So I, what I would say to that is, yes, the United States, yes, if we look at a Mercator projection of the world, the United States does sit at the center and there's the Atlantic and there's the Pacific and the countries on either side. But it's also true that these countries all interrelate with one another. And many of these relationships center on the United States. But I think one of the lessons we've taken from the Ukraine war is what a tremendous latent power the European Union is and what a tremendous ally it is when it and the United States can work together. One of the ways to think about it is in this world, there are four globally wanted currencies, four globally wanted and trusted currencies are major ones. I'm from Canada originally. I had no disrespect to the Canadian dollar. It's the dollar, it's the euro, the big two, and the little two, the pound and the yen. And if the people who regulate the dollar and the euro and the pound and the yen are at the same table on the same side of an issue, the financial power they deploy is greater than the United States alone deployed in the 1940s and vastly greater than Britain alone deployed when Chamberlain gave the weary Titan speech. From sitting in Britain, one of the challenges to that, I guess, is that the British economy itself is going to grow less strongly than the yeah. Russian economy this year. It's been startling that Russia hasn't collapsed economically as much as I think I certainly felt that it was going to, and many others did. Yeah. 
you know, when the bazookas came out early on in the war. Yes. To compare Britain and Russia, to coin an analogy, is a little bit like comparing a man with a chronic alcoholism problem to Britain, a man who hurt himself by stupidly crashing his motorcycle into a tree. So you made one very costly decision, and that was Brexit. And I'm not going to gainsay it because there are arguments for Brexit, and I respect them. But what the problem with the Brexit debate was Brexit was sold to the British public as meaning more when it meant less. Maybe less for a good reason. Britain has made a lot of sacrifices for independence and sovereignty in the past. Mm -hmm. And compared to what was necessary to see off the Spanish Armada or the Luftwaffe, Brexit is not as expensive as that. On the other hand, maybe the independence wasn't as necessary as it was then. That's your call. But the reason for Britain's economic problem is you were sorting out both the Brexit and the pandemic at the same time. I have no doubt that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, those will have been sorted out. The pandemic was a one-time cost. Mm -hmm. Brexit will be an ongoing cost. But Britain will be a growing and developing, flourishing society that has made this costly purchase that was sold to it as an income source rather than an expense. Russia is on a spiral to collapse. And one of the things that you've learned from many controlled economies, not to compare them in any way but functionally, but the Nazi economy continued to increase its output, even as it was cut off from all world trade for two years. Right. Um, it was only by 1944 that the economic madness of what it was doing caught up, and that economy then went into its death spiral. Sovietized Russian economy, the increasingly Sovietized Russian economy, can lock itself off from the world, can do forced savings, can do forced mobilizations of resources, can suppress cons consumer demand and transfer resources to the state sector and the military sector. And it could do that for a while. But it is devouring itself. I guess to play the pessimist, if Russia is able to keep going for two years, as you said, sort of Nazi Germany was able to. Okay. But if they do, they'll have a, a different U.S. president in yes. power. At this point, that has to be their absolutely only hope, because they can't win the war economically, financially, or on the battlefield, but they can win it politically inside the United States. I'll come back to Trump later on in the interview, but to go back to the Chamberlain analogy and Britain and the United States, the thing that cost Britain was always going to be overtaken by the United States as population wealth. Yeah. That was going to happen. Principally, the First World War, catastrophic cost of sustaining the balance of power in Europe yeah. that it existed. I think there are parallels with Taiwan here. I wonder for the American public, what price is too high f to defend Taiwan? Is it like the First World War and it's better just to not get involved? No belligerent in the First World War, not even those Serbian maniacs, would have gotten into it if they'd known what it was going to cost. Right. It, it was a series of decisions made by people. And my view of the history of the First World War by the way, just it is such a touch point. One of the things that people advocate a more passive foreign policy, say to those who advocate more active foreign policy, is you think everything is Munich, 1938. Yeah. Which I say, you think everything is the First World War, and you don't even understand the First World War. <laughs> because the story of the First World War that the Allied belligerents told themselves at the beginning to justify what they're doing is this was Germany's fault. Germany started it. We didn't want it. Germany continued it on. And they bear the guilt of the war, and they are behaving in uniquely atrocious ways. And then there was a two generations of revisionist scholarship. That's crude. That's unsophisticated. There's more nuance. It's more complicated than that. There are trains of causality. And you work your way all the way through to the end. You realize the war was Germany's fault. <laughs> it happened <laughs> because Germany that, yeah. wanted it. And Germany did fight the war in ways more heinous than the Allies did. And the, the naive view, suitably deepened, was the correct one. But we, of course you would never have started it. And with Taiwan... Or prevented it, right? So it still might have been right, even if it was Germany's fault. 
for Britain not to get involved to preserve No, that's the mistake. The Britain would not have preserved its wealth had it not joined in. At some level, the enemy gets a vote. When the German war aim is to destroy France as a great power, mm-hmm. to reduce the Low Countries to dependencies, and to redraw the map of Eastern Europe in such a way that Russia, too, becomes a subordinate power, then if you're Britain and you say, look, we won't shed blood or treasure to stop that outcome. You will save a lot of lives and save a lot of treasure, but yeah. you will be a dependency, too, because the great mistake of British foreign policy for a long time has been imagining that Britain can have a successful future apart from Europe. Britain is a European country. While proximity doesn't matter so much for strategy, as I said at the beginning, it matters a lot for trade, especially in the kind of trade people did 100 years ago. When If your biggest imports, as they were then, are animal feed, timber, newsprint, you are bound to your neighbors. And this takes us a little, this takes us too much in the world of history and not enough into the world of Taiwan. The point is not what price will we pay to defend Taiwan. The question is, what steps will we take to make sure we don't have to pay that price? And they're two separate questions, but I guess to, to a certain extent, China might make a mistake. It might decide that America is weaker than it is or that it doesn't believe it. This is the ultimate reason that the advocates of active foreign policy are right and the advocates of passive foreign policy are wrong. Because the advocates of passive foreign policy, in order to make their case, they always have to argue for American weakness, whether they think it or not. Because that's the logic of the case. Like, why shouldn't, you know, the people who advocate a more passive policy, we can't do everything, we're not as strong as we used to be. You say that for polemical purposes. Eventually you convince yourself. And eventually if you convince yourself, you'll convince others. And once you've convinced them, they'll act on it. The people say, you know what? We are going to build an association with the EU and the UK and Japan and Australia and Canada and other partners. And we're going to have global standards of anti-corruption mechanism, global environmental standards that are going to put a serious constraint on China's ability to export by environmental dumping. They are going to meet a network of counterpressure that is so obviously unified, so wealthy, so strong, that they'll ask themselves the question, if we resort to violence, will this problem get better? No, it'll be worse if we're violent. And they will be checked and checked. But the cooperation is our great resource. One of the many things that was so, so wrong about the Trump years, and let's separate the uniquely toxic and pathological personality of Donald Trump from the less toxic and less pathological people around him. Some of them were honest. Many of them were smart and many of them were honest. Some of them were smart, some of them were honest. But one of the things that they shared was a view of the allies as, as a burden. And look, it's always more complicated to consult with people than to do what you want without thinking about it. It's not necessarily very smart to do what you want. As the consultation process may be annoying, may cause delay. It also makes you smarter. And Let's come in at it from the other angle then, because I take your point about cooperation and building this great alliance between Europe and the United States, Canada, Japan. But right now, to a certain extent, not all of Europe wants to get into line. You have Macron, who's pursuing his own policy. Germany was clearly pursuing its own policy. It's unclear to me that Germany and France want the kind of world yeah. that you're advocating and can be pressured into doing it. They have a lot of interest in selling their products to China and, and elsewhere. They also want to be a pole of the world themselves. Yeah. A sort of, there's a kind of Euro-Gaulist case that Macron is making. To some extent, if America is as powerful as you say it still is, shouldn't it carry a bigger stick and say, it's time you got into line. We're protecting you. You've got to do what we say. I've said this so many times, and I'll say it one more time. 
an important element of American power is the power and independence of its friends. And yes, Europe is a looser arrangement, obviously, than the United States, but there is one European Central Bank. So on, when it comes time to deal with financial sanctions, there is one interlocutor, not many. And what we discovered through the Ukraine wars, yeah, it's been challenging sometimes to bring different European countries along, but Germany has been extraordinarily generous with humanitarian aid. Ukraine not only has to fight a war, it also has to pay old age pensions, run hospitals. It has to provide some various kinds of income support to keep its people eating. And the United States has not been funding that as generously as Germany has. And meanwhile, Germany has turned off its imports of Russian gas, an enormous degree of sacrifice. The United States has just sent weapons that we had in inventory anyway. Now, we're beginning to have to write new checks. But for the early part of the war, I mean, you would hear these numbers about how much we were spending. But what we were really doing was sending them inventory that had already been paid for would have to be replaced. But it was not cash money. Mm -hmm. The Germans are paying cash money. And from the start, as, by the way, have the British and other European allies. But yeah, it's work to bring them along. I was active in the Bush administration. I was not a major figure, but I was there during the Iraq war. And looking back on it, more listening to allies might have been a good idea. <laughs> we'll definitely turn to Iraq and Afghanistan and the lessons of those. And you're right, Europe has made good calls in the past. America has made bad calls. Britain has made bad calls. I do want to come back to this European issue and, and funding. One of the lessons of this Ukraine war, as well as the ones you've talked about, is American dependency still on the United States. Europe is a rich place. right? Mm -hmm. it, it, the economies of Europe together dwarf Russia's. If it got its act together, if it put its hand in its pocket, it could afford to defend itself in a much better way than it does at the moment. Yeah. I spoke to one European diplomat and he said to me, look, I've come to the conclusion that after 20 years of Americans saying to us, you need to pay more for your defense and we haven't done it. The only way we're ever going to do it is if the Americans essentially force us by saying, yeah. you're on your own now. When you get the, the Americans who are critical of the Allies and they talk about how Europe doesn't do anything, you sometimes get the idea from them that there was some tremendous accident or oversight led the United States to build an architecture in which they said, Germany, you're not going to have an army. Japan, you're not going to have a navy. <laughs> Leave that to us. You focus on what you do well. Yeah. <laughs> that was the plan. The military dependency of Europe and Japan on the United States, that was the plan. And while the plan is now subject to revision and they can do more, Europe is going to have abundant opportunity. Russia is going to lose this war. Ukraine is going to win. And it's going to end, and probably fairly soon. And when it does, we are going to face a task of reconstruction that is going to stagger the mind. What if you're wrong on this? I think it was for the Atlantic you wrote, look, I was very influenced by the Cold War. Yeah. And my sense that the people that were supportive of the Cold War were supportive of the Iraq War. And the people that were wrong about the Cold War were opposed to the Iraq War. And that influenced you sort of thought, yeah. I'm with those guys. Yeah. And I think you wrote that the problem was that the people that were wrong about the Cold War were right about yeah. Iraq. Now, what if the same is the case with Ukraine? What if the other side is right and well, actually Russia can hold on and it will hold on and it won't give up its territory? And actually, this is a war that is a little bit more like Iraq or Vietnam, where for America, it's a war on the periphery of its uh, power. For Russia, it's a, it's a war that is absolutely central to its interest. And therefore, it will never lose this war. So let's be more specific when I say Russia can't win, what I mean by that. I am not a military expert. I am not predicting that there will be Ukrainian counteroffensive or that it will be successful or how successful it will be. 
I don't know that Ukraine will liberate any more of its territory than it has already done. The war may freeze into kind of a line of control situation, India, Kashmir. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. If that's true, Russia's lost. I don't think Russia will realize, you know what problem? I don't have enough real estate. I don't have enough worthless real estate. I don't have enough shattered former Soviet apartment buildings populated by people. I don't have too few opportunities to spend productive assets in violence. They had lots of those already. What they were fighting for was to change the character of the Ukrainian state. Kiev is the largest Russian-speaking democratic city on earth. You have a Russian-language-speaking democracy. Putin has the same problem with Kiev that China has with Taiwan, except that Kievan Russian is more easily understood in Russia than I understand than Taiwanese Chinese is understood in mainland China. Although China gets pop stars from Taiwan, Taiwan is a cultural provider to mainland China in a way that is very disturbing and disorienting. Obviously, Taiwan is no strategic threat. So why does China care? Why is this so important? It's because because they are showing your people what is possible. And the Ukrainians have already shown our people will mobilize. Our people will defy the power of the Russian state and can do so quite successfully. It's very possible, and I have written this for The Atlantic, that what is going to happen is that the intensity of the conflict will subside. The future of the war may look more like what happened between 2014 and 2022, where it's not peace, but it's not war. But the cities of Ukraine are going to have to return to productive work. And people are going to need places to live. And refugees will want to and should be encouraged to return home. This is the asymmetry of this conflict. And and reading a book by Robert Kaplan recently, The Tragic Mind, in which he encourages a tragic mindset that to avoid catastrophe, you have to think tragically about events, is the argument of his book. It made me think about Afghanistan in particular, but also Vietnam and these places that can be kept destroyed by a neighbor. In Afghanistan's case, Pakistan was a U.S. and British ally, and yet it managed to keep that place destroyed, essentially. And look where we are today. Russia could rain down missiles on Ukraine, even if it's losing, keeping that country destroyed in a way that they can't respond. Can I say that with the tragic mind before going to the particulars, which are interesting? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There, he may be dead now, but for many years, there's a figure, a Wall Street figure named Henry Kaufman, who was known as Dr. Doom, because he was always predicting that things were going to terrible, the market was going to crash, there was going to be inflation, one pessimistic prediction after another. Dr. Doom remained the chief economist for somewhere prestigious, I forget where, but for many gainfully employed years and became a wealthy man. I think about Dr. Doom. If Dr. Doom had been Dr. Sunshine, if he had been equally wrong on the upside, he'd have been fired. We have no respect for people who are optimistic and wrong. 
We have tremendous respect for people who are pessimistic and wrong because after all, they said it would be tragic, but it's fine. So we're so happy about the good outcome that we forgive them that they are wrong. And people are persistently wrong, persistently wrong on a downside. We still say they must be deep. They wouldn't be gloomy if they were not profound intelligences. <laughs> and you say about people who are optimistic, that, that obviously this bespeaks naivete and shallowness, even if the people who are optimistic are more right more often than the people who are pessimistic. I think in world... Do you think that's right, though? I think yeah. I'm very sure about this in Wall Street. If you are in the investment world, if you are pessimistic about the U.S. economy, if you started being pessimistic... Let's say your career started, your investing career started, I don't know, in 1969. Cash and gold. Right. <laughs> I'm going to hold cash and gold until I retire in 1999. You'd be an idiot. But you know what? You'd have people subscribing to your newsletters. The mockery would be much more gentle than the opposite number who predicted good things. Of course, in Britain, you can't be an optimist. You're you not allowed. But, in America, you can. Right? But economics, financially, we can see the optimists are right. And if you look at the safety and security and comfort and goodness of our world, take any 30-year period, certainly for the people in the developed countries and even for people in less developed countries. So you know what? The strategic optimists were right over the 30-year period they are. So the tragic mind... Robert Kaplan, very intelligent person, many insights. This is not in any way criticism. I haven't read the book, so I'm sure it's glittering with ideas. But it is true that if you say, I'm calling my book The Tragic Mind, however wrong you are, you will suffer less criticism than if you've written the opposite book and been equally wrong. Yes, we need the insights of The Tragic Mind. We also need the insights of, you know what? Things work sometimes. And the capitalism project, the democracy project, the multilateral trade project, the alliance project, these have been tremendous successes. Not not 100%, but I don't know, maybe Ukraine won't be a success. So the, the tragic mind is not necessarily to say, look, everything's going bad, it's getting worse, things are deteriorating. It's more that when you look into the world, you have to say, it's dangerous, things can go wrong, we could lose this, what is the worst case scenario yeah. if we get involved? I'd say from a British perspective, but the same as an, an, an American perspective, you could say, take some a figure like Richard Holbrook. Yeah. He was just an eternally optimistic figure that American power could do good in the world. Yeah. Even after his experiences in Vietnam, he wasn't really able to let go of that sense. Yeah. He was optimistic from the start of the Vietnam yeah. War. And it was only during it that he became, this is unwinnable. We can't win this. But he persisted. He did good things in Bosnia. He was right to the end of his yeah. life, though, he was thinking American power could win in Afghanistan. And it couldn't. The optimism leads to catastrophic mistakes as well. And the pessimism leads to paralysis and it leads to doing nothing. Yes, using a British analogy, when going outside, you definitely should take an umbrella and be prepared. Maybe galoshes. But the idea that, okay, I'm going to lock myself in the door and then I'm going to retreat to the bedroom and lock that door and maybe go into the bathroom and lock that door and never go out. And then for sure I won't get wet. For sure you won't get wet, but you also won't get anywhere. And we were, I think we're talking about the fantastic book that our friend George Packer wrote. There are a lot of people who think, do I need 600 pages on the life of Richard Holbrook? <laughs> is the answer. The, the answer is, I mean, I had the book on my shelf for six months thinking, I don't know that I love George. I love his writing. He's such a wonderful journalist, but 600 pages on Richard Holbrook. And then you start and you cannot stop and you learn so much. The people who believe that things are possible are the people who get things done. And if you don't believe that, if you don't start, one of the things that Whenever you meet a person who's built a successful business, the one thing that all those people have in common is that they were irrationally optimistic. 
about the business. And the reason you and I have never done the same <laughs> is because we are rationally pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also not people who have built great enterprises. So one more thing. I think the whole language of optimism and pessimism mischaracterizes the kind of discussion you need about events in the world. Because those are just opinions. The real question is not optimist versus pessimist, but passive versus active. Will you act? And of course, you may be wrong if you act. And you may do the wrong thing. Uh, you may do it at the wrong time. You may do it in the wrong way. You may undertake an enterprise that was doomed from the beginning. But there are a lot of enterprises that weren't doomed from the beginning. They're only doomed if you don't do them. I think there's also an instinct and a, and a worldview. I, 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 would, I know uh, Tony Blair reasonably well, and I think his view is one based on the arc of history is bending towards justice. Things are improving and the world is going in this direction and I can act to make it get there quicker. I can intervene. I can make a difference. And he did. He did in Northern Ireland. He didn't in... You don't even need to have such a clear opinion. When people say to me, what's the state of American democracy? What's going to happen with Donald Trump? I said, that's really the wrong question. My question is not, is Donald Trump going to win or what's going to happen? My question is, what are you going to do? the, The focus on Trump and his chances, you have no control over that. The only thing you control is you. And you can say, to the utmost of my ability, I'm going to see that he doesn't come back. Now, he may still do it anyway, but this is not a conversation about his actions. It's a conversation about mine. And that's, I think, the question with these tragic mindsets versus optimistic mindsets. And I look, I am by temperament and outlook a pessimist. There are very few Ashkenazi optimists. We are genetically selected for pessimists. For a thousand years, the people I'm descended from would look around them and say, I think things are going bad. And other people say, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And the people said, no, nah, I think we should leave. No, nah, we should stay. And the people that said, I think we should leave tended to have grandchildren. And the people said, I think we should stay tended not to. And you do that for enough generations and you meet people who are full jumping about the world. So I'm temperamentally pessimistic. But what I would caution against is passive behaviors, the abdication of responsibility, the refusal to, because sometimes, and these are the most heroic people of all, people say, we're probably going to lose. Maybe we're wholly doomed. We're still going to pick up the rifle. That's why is the Warsaw Ghetto uprising? Those people had no chance. They yeah. knew they were all dead men. They picked up the rifle anyway. Let's let's turn to Trump and this question that you raised just then about w- what you can do. One thing I, I wonder, though, is that all of the events that we've talked about and the decisions that were made, active decisions to try and shape the world, they've created a world in which... Donald Trump has come to the fore. He's not separate from that world. He has come from it without the mistakes that led to to the 2008 crash or the opening to China or Iraq and Afghanistan. You wouldn't have had the space for somebody like Trump to come. A a more cautious attitude would have created less tumultuous times. I don't think there is any policy that can safeguard the world or a country against ignorance and wickedness and crookedness. Donald Trump is what he is because he's born with a certain psychology. And he was a crook long before he was a politician. And he got away with it because of various defects and the inevitable gaps in the system, the defects in American law, the gaps in the system. He was a crook for a long time. And everybody who followed business in New York knew he was the least bankable name. No one in New York real estate would lend him any money. He was, he was a joke figure. His incompetence, his crookedness, those were all notorious facts. And he 
slithered through certain holes in the wall. If the, the wall had been different, the holes would have been different, and he would have slithered in another way. That sounds like a passive no, answer, though. But it doesn't mean he was also the beneficiary of, of a lucky bounce. And one of the things that Donald Trump did, he, the one thing he's really quite good at, is selling garbage as gold. Not many people have worked in the White House. Not many people have been at that level of power and at that time as well, in that period post 9-11. Now, you're at the center of this imperial power that is the most powerful country in the world. You saw it. What things have you learned since then until now? What's the sort of big takeaway? And what, what do you think you got most wrong? Yeah. We will spend days on that question because I, you, you learned a lot. I'll, I'll tell you one story about learning. When I came out of the Bush White House, I was very disoriented and very much at a crossroads in life and very unsure what to do next and very uncertain. And I began to put thoughts in, in writing and was terribly unsuccessful at what I wanted to do. And there are certain standard forms, and people write post-White House books. You can, they, they usually have a ghostwriter, but it's a formula. You, the opening dramatic chapter, then your humble origins, then your 10 recommendations at the end. And I remember talking to a very successful film producer about my problem and why my book was such a mess. And he said, the way you need to think about it is uh, it's like that scene in Great Gatsby where Nick Carraway rents a little cottage next door to the mansion of Jay Gatsby. And we're not interested in Nick. We're only interested in Nick because of the coincidence that he happened to rent the shack. So tell us what you saw. Don't tell us about you. Tell us about what you saw from your shack. And then when you told us all the things you saw, stop talking. <laughs> so there are a lot of things I have been over the past couple of years trying to write. A, I've, I've written a draft of a vast compendium, which I'm going to have to produce in some order to, about what things I've seen and things I've tried to make sense of. But one of the reasons it's hard to get as much insight as you would want from political memoirs is because the kind of people who do this work are usually selected for exactly the qualities that make you not only the worst kind of writer, but the worst kind of observer. Because the observer says, it's the camera's eye. The camera's soul and interests and future, past and future are not important. It's the camera's eye that is important. It's the, the scene. And although the camera always distorts, the camera chooses, but you have to be a camera. People who do this work don't want to be cameras. They want to be movie stars. <laughs> yeah. The book that you wrote, I think George Bush was the right man for yeah. the job. Do you still think that? I have, I have a lot of regard for him in a lot of ways. Obviously, the big call, um, he got wrong. And I think I wonder, I think he probably knows that. He hasn't said that, has he? I don't think. No, but he hasn't said the opposite either. And when politicians feel right. They say it even if everyone tells them they're wrong. I've never met a politician who's ever said that their main goal was wrong. You've never, but you've never met a politician who went quiet in the way that George Bush has gone quiet. And they're usually out there writing memoirs and say how they were right all along and history will see. And he hasn't quite done that. But at the same time, or what I think of him, is he was holding at bay certain forces inside the Republican Party that were, by the way, playing in all the developed countries, that every developed country is its own counterpart. Trumpism. Trumpism is speaking for something. Trump speaks to things that are eternal and enduring in human nature, cruelty, ignorance, malice. He appeals to all of those things, and those are always with us. But he appealed to some specific things, too. And yes, some of them are the things you point to in the world of Iraq and the financial crisis. Some of them are life cycle events, the, where the baby boomers are in their life cycle and how that generation has changed. This is a generation that sits on top of a lot of 
we've had this giant real estate bubble across the developed world. And so the baby boom generations are sitting on top of a lot of wealth, but that's destructive wealth because the more valuable your house is, the harder it is for the next generation to start families and to raise the children who are going to pay the pension that you're going to need when you sell the house. Right. It's a cannibalistic form of wealth. And the baby boomers are in the situation across the developed world. At the same time, because of the economic bumps since 2008, that their incomes are not where they would be. And that's made them testy and fearful. And they're all confronting various forms of demographic and cultural change. Having lived in a world organized to suit them from the time they were born, they're now reaching their 60s and are facing for the first time a world that is ceasing to be organized to suit them. And they don't like it one bit. So there are these other things that are going on. And George Bush, his big project was a cultural one. It was a responsible kind of conservatism. For the first months of his administration, if you'd asked him, in fact, this is not a hypothetical not a question, when you asked him in January 2001, what do you think your most important contribution is going to be? He said, not would have said, he said, I see my role as cultivating a, an ethic of responsibility. And I think that's pretty damn laudable. But then it was just lost after... Then events interceded and he made his big calls. Do you think he's haunted by that? Do I sometimes look at Tony Blair and think he is? Someone I know who's was a career critic of George W. Bush said, I am not prepared for a world which obviously the biggest influence on George Bush's later life is the artwork of Lucien White. If <laughs> 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 you look at his paintings, whose work has he been studying? It's Whatever image you have of George W. Bush, I probably don't think most people would expect that he's been going to art galleries and studying the painting of Lucien Freud, but he obviously has. And Francis Bacon as well, and other people who are you know, these masters of contemporary art. So yes, he's not painting apple orchards. What about you? I haven't been inside a government and I haven't had to make big decisions or support things that I've later been conflicted about. I've just done it from the outside. How do you, are you, are you haunted by it? Or do you, how do you feel about it? It's a, that's a question that gets into a very difficult balancing act between responsibility and historical accuracy. So you you also want to do justice to what your true role place in the scheme of things was. And too much emphasis on the question you ask invites you to magnify yourself in an egotistical way. You know, yes, I think a lot, not so much I didn't make important decisions, but I had my thoughts. And to the extent and that's all I've ever really had, and to the extent that my thoughts were misjudged, then that's my res responsibility. How much impact that had on the external world, that was pretty modest, but it had a lot of impact on me. And so I care about whether I understood the world correctly. That's, we all say, what is the thing out of life that you value? And one of the reasons that politicians have such messed up lives is if you say, I really value close, intimate relationships, you're probably not going to choose politics <laughs> as your line of work. So I value close, intimate relationships and I value understanding the world. And, and if I'd messed up to the extent I'd mess up either of those things, that, that troubles me for me. I don't know that has a lot of relevance to the rest of the world. While an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom, Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers 
huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. You also have a, a love for words. I mean, the, the phrase that you're most well known for is the axis of evil. Yeah. What do you think about that now, 20 years on? Do you think it was accurate or actually the impact that it had was, yeah. was, was huge? So those are two separate questions. So let's talk about the accuracy and then the impact. And the impact is easier to talk about. When President Bush delivered those words, and the words are his because he, I mean, what a speechwriter is doing is always suggesting. Um, oh. And especially the speech is a success. The speechwriter has to leave the picture <laughs> because every time a politician says something memorable, that politician takes a risk. Mr. Gorbachev, take tear down the wall. If right. the wall has stood for 20 more years, Reagan yeah. would have looked like an idiot. Right. And it was Reagan who owns those words, not whoever was involved in composing them. There are critics who say, we were so close to an understanding with Iran. And if only George Bush had not spoken meanly about Iran, we would have had that. I think, really, you're trying to sell me that? You're trying to sell me that? And you've learned nothing from how many years has it been of U.S. You're always that close to an understanding with Iran. And then they murder somebody. You're never that close to an understanding with Iran. So that argument I always thought was self-serving nonsense by people who wanted to, who had their own particular tiny little portfolio and wanted to show much greater success in that portfolio than they'd achieved. I, we, I were that close. If only one of the things that we all should see about diplomacy is countries do not rapproche because they say compliments to each other. They say compliments to each other because they rapproche. And if countries for their own strategic interests are on are working to on a path of cooperation, then the, the they'll overcome the rhetoric. And if they're not, then the rhetoric won't matter. So the as to what do I think about those words as accuracy, what we're trying to convey was the United States faced a set of interrelated problems that were not a partnership and we're not an alliance, but of people who are opportunistically cooperating with one another. And I, this has been too long an answer, but I'll say I'll say one more thing. When I came into the administration, I did you're going to forget this, and it's, you have to be, you had, you had to have been in these battles. But I remember being scolded in so many TV studios. Say, Mr. Frum, the administration which you work has suggested that Hamas and Iran are cooperating. As we all know, that's impossible because Hamas is Sunni and Iran is Shiite, and it's not possible. Yeah. And the answer is, they're doing it. <laughs> it must be possible since it's happening. It's impossible that Iran and would be sharing its weapons technology with North Korea in exchange for North Korean missile technology because Iran is Muslim and North Korea is Stalinist. Well, it has to be possible because they did it. They're not partners. They're not friends. They're not allies. But they had overlapping interests. And they presented interrelated problems. And that's what the president was trying to say in a way that caught the attention of the American people in the world. Do you think, though, that over the last... 20 years, the things that have happened, that there are lessons that we need to go back and learn from all the way back to Vietnam and Holbrook and on all of these, that American power has to start making the sacrifices and choices. We'll take this back all the way to the start of this conversation, it seems to me. America made a very difficult decision back under Nixon. 
to deal with China yeah. because it was the least worst option. There's got to be similar choices that are made today. Obviously, if there could be such a thing as a time machine and you could go back in the past and say, buy Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Get in on the Facebook IPO. We, there, there's a lot of wisdom that the present has for the past. The problem is the past can't use it because there are no time machines. The most useful lessons are the most general, not the most specific. And the lessons are free trade is good. Democracy is good. Seek peace. Prepare for war. Try to assume the best, but prepare for the worst. And above all, have confidence, not only in the value of your system, not only in the goodness of your system, but its latent power. Do you sometimes wonder the sort of the criticism would be, okay, boomer, that's the past. That's the old world. You're actually getting in a time machine to go back to a world when America was great and powerful and it did all of these good things. That world is gone. This is a post-Trump world. This is a Xi world, a Putin world, a Ukraine world. We have to change with it. The free trade doesn't work and you've got the American uh, Inflation Act, which is a brutal form of protectionism. Yeah. Those things are working now. You have to change. I don't think protectionism ever worked. They are, um, unfortunately... Uh, protectionism is on the rise everywhere. And that it's unfortunate that Donald Trump's trade policy is one of the areas where Biden has chosen to be continuous with Trump rather than discontinuous. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate. But when people will point to something, yeah, it's true. Putin and Xi are there. But that doesn't mean that they're winning. And that doesn't mean that they're laudable. One of the things I find, there's a school of thought about foreign policy that calls itself realism. I say that is one of the greatest miracles of branding ever. You take the most ideological, the people most refuse to acknowledge contrary facts, the people who are mo most have the same answer to every question, the people who are the least realistic about everything. It's the Dr. Doom problem again, that it just sounds, you'll say, it's thou, oh, that's so naive. Let's try frame the contrary proposition and let's test it. Authoritarianism is powerful. Brutality is powerful. Cruelty is powerful. And dictators for a long time have spent a lot of time hiring Hugo Boss to design outfits to make it look like it's true. And then they send the Hugo Boss outfitted people into combat, and it turns out, guess what? The Ukrainians beat them because those are their homes, and they will pay any price to protect them. On that optimistic note, we should finish, but thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks to David for joining us here at the studio in London. It's been a real pleasure. For me, the events of the last 20 years have proved the need for more tragic thinking, if anything. Tragic thinking about the world and how we act in it, not for passivity as such, but certainly for restraint and conservative discipline. David, though, has not lost faith in the American dream and the power of the democratic world to change the world. He has made the case for America not to change course because of the past mistakes, but to continue acting with a boldness, shaping the world rather than being shaped by the rest of the world. In Washington, the battle is underway to decide America's future role in the world. And the reality is, whichever vision wins out, it will have enormous consequences for the rest of us, for this century and beyond. Thanks for listening, and please do tune in again soon. I'm Tom McTague, and you've been listening to These Times. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.